Welcome to the Pod 20 and my guest this week is the entrepreneur and the host of the Good Luck Club podcast, Simon Squibb. He dropped out of school and started his first business when he was just 15 years old. He's an inspirational character. Meet Simon Squibb soon. The voice actor Tom Clark Hill will be on to talk about his big move from Los Angeles to England's West Midlands. Rob Goldstone will talk about going on tour with Michael Jackson and I'll talk to Saruti Bala from the true crime podcast Red Handed about podcasting being the punk version of broadcasting. It's all happening on a show that's more expensive than a coronavirus test and trace consultant. The Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio on DAB in London, the home counties, Manchester and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. At number 20 this week, it's the Good Luck Club podcast from the entrepreneur Simon Squibb. Simon, you dropped out of school at the age of 15 and started a business sorting out people's gardens. How did that first business go? I, I would say it was not a success financially. I think it taught me a lot of things. And I um, initially, I, I made quite a lot of money, actually, from it. But but, but due to very uh, inexperienced knowledge in things like partnerships, um, managing cash flow, um, understanding that, you know, there'd be seasons, for example. This is just stuff I didn't <laughs> I didn't even really think about. So in, in the beginning, I, I um, it was it was, you know, um, early spring when I started it. So it was all you know, everyone wanted their gardens prepared for summer. I didn't really you know know that winter time would come and no one really wanted to do anything with their gardens much so you know I, I, these things meant that it started off really well but due to you know lack of experience it, it didn't do very well you know a year in um, however I think the experience of building a business led me on to then start another business and another business. I, I've started 17 companies in total, 13 of them with no money. Um, I'm lucky enough that you know, my last company, Fluid, I sold to PwC for more money than I'll ever need. But, but to be honest, you know, I've enjoyed building businesses with no money. That's always been uh, really exciting to me. When you say no money, you mean no one else's money but your own. I mean, no one else's money, and often no money on my side either. The gardening company, I had, I had no money. Yeah. It's not like I said, right, I've raised money from someone, or I've got an investor, or you know, I, I've got a bit of savings. I, I literally had nothing, um, li- literally nothing. So n- no equipment. Um, you know, one week's worth of clothes. You know, one pair of shoes. Um, you know, it really was starting from the very basics. And, and I love now um, the learning that you actually don't need money to start a business. A lot of business building starts in the mind and with a bit of effort because so many people say they need money to start a business. And, and it's actually not true. You, you just need the right mindset to start a business is what I learned for that process. And you've got to start somewhere. And it ended up taking you to Hong Kong. I want to find out more about that in a bit. The Good Luck Club podcast from Simon Squibb is at number 20 this week. At 19, it's David Tennant does a podcast with, and his latest guest is the Canadian actor, director, writer and producer Dan Levy. At 18, newscast from the BBC. 17 is Spanner and Spoon, the cartoon podcast featuring the many voices of Tom Clark Hill. Tom, you're originally from the United States. When you moved from Los Angeles to Britain with your English wife, Jackie, had you ever been to the UK before? I visited in 85 
we got married in 1981. Mm-hmm. Came over in 85 in March, and I thought, oh, it's springtime. And uh, we, we were in Birmingham, and, and they were in a, a, a place that had, uh, like, really bad water pressure, you know. And I remember taking a taking a shower, and this little trickle and, like, like steam coming off of me, and I'm just, like, freezing, man. And they had one fire downstairs, you know. And uh, I'd come down, you want to shit here, Tom? You know, and I'd just, like, huddle around. And, and the first the first trip I made was to the store to buy some Long Johns, you know. And, and, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, she had a great family. You know, her, her mom and dad, and then she had uh, uh, two brothers and two sisters. And, um, yeah, it, it was good. Good stuff, man. And, but when we finally moved over, her father found us a house. They'd retired by then and moved out to Droitwich. Right. And uh, they found us a house by them and uh, helped furnish it and everything. We sent over some money, and it was all waiting for us. What was the the hardest thing you had to adjust to, you know, being a septic tank in the UK? Being a septic was, uh, um, I guess, you know, I mean, living living in, in California, where I'm from, there was all four seasons. Yeah. You know. And then L.A., I got used to being pretty warm a lot of the time, you know, going swimming in the ocean on Christmas Day and doing stuff like that every, you know, not always. But then when I moved to Boston, Boston had really extreme weather. Yeah. So, you know, luckily, I'd, I'd been through that. So, But I remember uh, we got here in October, and like the middle of November, I still didn't have a lot of work. I was starting to make some connections. But I remember going outside, and it, was, it had been like four days of freezing fog, and I thought, what have I done? And you know, and then and then riding in cars and seeing people coming down the wrong side of the road to me, you know, it was like, oh man, you know, was, oh no. So it took me a while to to be able to drive, you know, to where I wasn't endangering everybody's life, you yeah. know. And, and uh, but yeah, I don't know, man. I, I I felt really blessed when I moved over here, and, and I don't know if it was the universe taking care of me because my my intentions were good the reason i came over here was a family move it wasn't a selfish career move or anything like that you know but um right away i had names of musicians uh, ian palmer being one of them who you i don't know if you know him graham uh works with ian palmer he's a drummer and his uncle is carl palmer of emerson lake and palmer okay yeah and his uncle is steve palmer who had the house uh the house trio gig on drums at Ronnie Scott's in Birmingham. Oh yeah, I've been and to so Ronnie Scott's. So within the first couple of weeks, I met Ian down at Ronnie's. He introduced me to Steve. Oh, Steve Broad had Street. Me, yeah. yeah, Steve had me sit in at some gig at the uh, uh, on the Hagley Road, and um, a couple of weeks later, the bass player from the house band, a guy named Tubby Dunn, uh, was going to go on holiday for a couple of weeks, and there I was f- filling in for him at Ronnie Scott's made a bunch of connections and and so I started working right away and one and the receptionist at Ronnie Scott's was a woman named Diane or D or something and she also worked uh, for immigration at the airport and so I I go down to try to get the permanent residence sticker sticker into my uh, passport and I'm at the back of this line there's about 20 guys in front of me like that and I see her behind the desk and I kind of like catch her eye and she comes walking out and kind of like sternly looks at me and she goes, you, she goes, come here, like I've been in trouble or something like that. And it takes me over to this other thing. And then, and then she, and then, uh, she, she says, I'm not going to smile, but you'll understand. And blah, 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 does all this paperwork and then bang, you know, like I've got, I've got this permanent residency sticker because I, I met her at, at the, at the Roddy's, you know? 
Wow, then, what a nice piece of luck that was then. Yeah, and the same thing happened too. I mean, as far as getting in the union, there's a piano player named John Patrick who's uh, real famous around uh, the Midlands and actually the UK. He's always been re- real involved in the union. And I'm not sure if he was president of the, mu- of the MU when I moved over here or he was like one of the top guys. And I had his number from somebody over there as well. And I, I went down to where he was playing at a place called The Bear in, in uh, Bearwood Road in Birmingham. And I uh, introduced myself to him. And then next thing I know, he's called me for a gig and fast-tracked me into the union, the MU as well. Yeah. So seemed like the stars were all lined up, you know. Great when that happens, isn't it, Tom? Well, next week, Tom will talk about growing up in a small town in Northern California. And Spanner and Spoon, the cartoon podcast that features Tom's voices, is at number 17 this week. At 16, it's How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth's latest guest is the TV presenter, baker and author Nadia Hussein. At 15, it's the Ezra Klein podcast, the winner of the 2020 Webby and People's Voice Awards for Best Interview Podcast. Let's get back to my special guest now. It is Simon Squibb. He's an entrepreneur and he's the host of the Good Luck Club podcast. And Simon, when you were a young man, you moved to Hong Kong. Yeah, I was um, 23 years old when when that came about. A A couple of things happened. I had a business called Accommodation Express, which was kind of an early dot-com concept. Um, it, it probably could have been lastminute.com or bookings.com, but 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 I, I'm, it was basically a very simple model. The hotels in, uh, used to get a lot of phone calls back in these days. This is 1997-ish. Um, and, and people would ring up the hotel to make a booking, and the hotel would often say, I'm sorry, we're full, and be very proud that they were full in the hotel and just kind of put the phone down, nothing they can do because they can't you know, make an extra room for a guest calling up. And I saw an opportunity that there was a kind of a wasted um, piece of marketing there. The hotel marketed to people that they had rooms. People had rung them to get a room and they were full and they would turn them away. So I said to the hotels, instead of turning them away, why don't you send them to me? I'll find them an equivalent room because there's other hotels in the area that aren't as good as marketing as you are. And there's there's spare rooms still available, just not at the hotel they've called. This is all pre-internet, just before the internet really took off. And um, and basically, so we then took those bookings. We gave the hotel commission of 8% for referring it to us. And the hotel that we placed it with gave us a 20% commission. So we were making a, about a 12% margin. And every time that phone rang and the hotel would turn them away, suddenly they were turning that into money. And, and secondly, we were then taking that unhappy customer who couldn't get the room they wanted into a happy customer and finding them a room they could they could get and that business did quite well um and i sold it and when i sold it i got a bit of advice that it would be a good idea um to maybe travel for nine months because i wouldn't have to pay capital gains tax on the money i generated uh from from that sale so a friend of mine was living in hong kong and said hey why don't you um why don't you come and visit so i I, that's what i did i said right i've I've had a you know experience since 15 years old of building businesses and why don't i go see the world and went to visit my friend in hong kong with a little bit of money in my pocket and when i got to hong kong my whole life changed i I just realized how big the world was i grew up in sydney it's a small town in england Um, i'd spent a bit of time in london but not much spent quite a lot of time in cambridge that was probably the biggest city I'd, i'd ever really got to know cambridge and then i went to hong kong which is the second most expensive city in the world to live a powerhouse of uh, ingenuity and innovation and it blew my mind and when i got there i was actually going against the tide because it was 1997 and hong kong was being handed over 
by the British back to the Chinese. Uh, it had been uh, colonized for 100 years by the British. So all the British people were leaving as I was arriving. And, and that led to some amazing opportunities because there was a lot of things that British people were doing there that suddenly weren't being done. And, and I saw some market gaps and decided to set up shop there. I want to talk about the cultural differences, especially when it relates to business between Hong Kong and the UK. Soon on the Pod 20, Simon Squibb, the host of the Good Luck Club podcast. Back to the chart now, and at number 14, the Happiness Lab with Dr. Laurie Santos. Laurie is a Yale professor and has studied the science of happiness and found that most of us do the exact opposite of what will truly make our lives better. At 13, and that's why we drink. Chilling ghost stories and terrifying true crime stories. The world's a scary place, and that's why we drink. At 12, an Englishman in from Rob Goldstone. Rob, back when you were working as a sports reporter in local radio, you managed to get Muhammad Ali as a surprise in-studio guest at BRMB Radio in Birmingham. Was pulling that off the inspiration for you to get into being a publicist and a manager of artists? No, I don't think then it was. Um, what happened then was I ended up going to... I kind of emigrated to Australia as many Brits do. And as part of that, I ended up uh, working at AAP, which is like the press association there, and working, um, doing a lot of entertainment stories. And I heard one day that Michael Jackson would be coming to town. And that's another figure that immediately I thought, aha, I have to be involved with that. So once again, I ingratiated myself with all those that were necessarily to be ingratiated with. And I got invited to the launch of this, uh, of his tour. And at the tour, I asked his publicist, how do I get on this tour? Because at the moment, all I've got is an invitation on a boat to a launch and hopefully a pair of tickets to the show. And um, he said, you need to go and speak to his manager, Frank DeLeo. And Frank DeLeo is a very famous manager. He looked like Danny DeVito. He's about four foot nothing and long hair and a big cigar and quite a large chap. And I went up and I said something like, I can't remember that. I said, hey, I'm Rob Goldstone. I'm a short, fat reporter from AAP. And he goes, yeah, I'm a short, fat manager of Michael Jackson. How do you do? Now, again, it's one of those moments. He could have gone, are you mad or who cares? But he didn't. It was a kind of, And he said, so what can I do for you? And I said, I'd really like to come on this tour. And he goes, well, then you need to get accredited. Go over there. And when I went back, the accreditation they gave me was all access. I could do everything other than do a moonwalk on the stage. And suddenly I became part of that tour. And I remember again calling my boss saying, you won't see me for 10 days, I'm going on this tour. What tour? It doesn't matter, Michael Jackson. And I said, I'll file stories every day. You're a press agency, that is what we do. And they were very excited. They're like, but you won't get to talk to him. I said, I'm just telling you, I'll file stories every day. And I filed tons of stories and they got loads of stuff. And I spent 10 days on the road with Michael Jackson. But not just on the road. I traveled with him. I was on planes with him. I sat next to him on flights. We talked about nonsense. And I got to know a little bit about Michael Jackson, meaning how he ticks. Well, of course, we've had the Leaving Neverland uh, documentaries recently. Did you see anything that you thought wasn't quite right at the time? 
I didn't. I think I was too young and too naive and actually too excited to be around Michael Jackson to even pay much attention to that because I wasn't on the tour as kind of like an investigative journalist. I was on there as a bit of an entertainment journalist who's getting this big scoop, hopefully. And, you know, when that happens, you have to be... I'm not... I'm not um, a sycophantic person, but I know how to ingratiate myself quite well. So I wasn't going to suddenly say, tell me the bad things about Michael Jackson. Or even like, I hear you speak to a chimp. That was off limits to me because that was what I was hoping would happen when we sat down for a big interview. Now, I never got a big interview because what Michael agreed to was he said he didn't like interviews, but he would talk to me. He kept saying that same thing. I'm talking, you're talking, you can run. And I understood that. So I would get lots of stuff, but I never got one big interview. I got lots of, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? How this, what that? Um, what I did notice was there was, I don't know if there were two, but there was definitely one young child that was dressed bizarrely, sometimes almost even dressed the same as Michael, who spent a lot of time with him. But I noticed that that child's parents were always put up in, if Michael had the best suite, they had the second best suite. If Michael went in this limo, they went in the one behind. And I was like, who are these people? I never thought about it as in, who are these people? There's something weird going on. I just thought, who is it? They didn't fit in. It didn't look like Michael Jackson. It's now, years later, that was one of the... Austra I don't know if his name's Wade Robson. He might be called that. One of the kids was who Wade, was Australian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, who was Australian. And the only thing I have to say, because I didn't see anything, I just saw him around, was when Michael was brought up on charges, and then later when Michael died, I've been interviewed by a lot of people over the years about this. And when Never uh, Leaving Neverland came out, I was interviewed. Dan Wharton interviewed me and all of that stuff. And they all said the same thing, which is like, well, it's right. He should have been brought up on charges. And I said, but if you're going to bring him up on charges, I would have those parents standing next to him. Because they, Michael Jackson wasn't a predator who went into the streets or went into a park and grabbed people or groomed people. These people literally handed him their child while they were kind of entertained like the king and queen in some suite somewhere. And I just think there's something very morally wrong with the idea that you and your husband are up there in a suite and you're, I don't know how old he was, 10-year-old, 12-year-old kid, is actually staying with Michael Jackson, who mm. you don't know, really. Mm. If you don't think that's wrong, okay, you don't think it's wrong, but you do know it's right. And in fact, I think one of the mothers said it, and, and, and ironically, I've never seen that document, but... I think one of the mothers did say it in that documentary that with hindsight, we were wrong to do that, to not like go, this is weird. But that's what I'm saying. It's not like Michael Jackson stole their kid and took him to Australia or took him to somewhere. They were kind of almost like active participants in this. And I found that all very strange. But in answer to your question, no, I never saw anything untoward happen with him. What I saw was a very shy, very odd, very childlike, very unusual genius. Hmm. And, and really, that is the only word for him. I've never since or expect to again or before seen anybody with the magnitude of talent that he had. I've never seen anybody. It was Jekyll and Hyde. It was almost like this shy wallflower who can't even speak loud enough that you can hear. You have to, like, crank an hour or two later, is holding 50,000 people's attention for two and a half hours. is amazing. Mm. It's Rob Goldstone and an Englishman in 
is at number 12 this week on the Pod 20. At 11, it's Off Menu with Ed Gamble and James A. Caster, their latest guest choosing their favourite food and drink is the author, journalist and podcaster Dolly Alderton. At 10, Lore, the podcast about dark historical tales. My special guest this week is Simon Squibb, the entrepreneur and the host of the Good Luck Club podcast. At the age of 23, Simon, you moved to Hong Kong. Tell me about how that changed your life and the way you approached things like the so-called work-life balance. I think when I first got to Hong Kong, well, first of all, when I, when I arrived, anyone that's been to Hong Kong will know what I'm talking about. The skyline is just like, like something out of the future. You know, you've got on the um, harbour front, like buildings 88 storeys high, you know, scattered across the whole of the harbour. And you just sit there and, you, and what you realise if you read about Hong Kong is it has no natural resources. So everything you see in front of you is, is, is made by someone's mind put into reality. It's not like you know, Saudi Arabia or, or these markets where they have oil, they have a natural resources, then funds these mega structures and these mega creations. Hong Kong has none of that. It is simply about brain power. And I just I just I think I got inspired by the you know the unbelievable stories of people that had gone to Hong Kong with nothing and then ended up owning 88 uh, story buildings um, and, and building out you know empires and and, and I, I know that I, I think what that first step was um, when I started working in that environment, that, that people there just didn't have this work-life balance story that I think England we have, in abundance there was no like start at nine and finish at five although i was self-employed in england i still felt like oh i better have my you know my weekends to myself i better have some downtime and what i learned in hong kong uh, and i think trained me was that you know work and life are the same thing culturally for example that some of the people that i worked with you know at the weekends they'd invite me around to their homes and, and we would hang out as families and there was no separation between the business deal and the relationship and your personal life and it completely transformed my mindset around what was work-life balance. And suddenly, I think that, that, that made it very important whatever you spent time on that you really enjoyed because it was actually your life. So, for example, the clients you had, you better like them because you're going to be spending a lot of time with them. You know, one of my clients for my agency business, I set up in Hong Kong called Fluid, which is the one I mentioned earlier, I sold to PwC. I used to go on his boat on a Sunday and hang out with him. You know, it, it all became very personal. And it's only it's only nine million people in Hong Kong, so it's also it's like it's, it's a very tight knit community. There's often one or two degrees of separation as well, which is an amazing thing from a network perspective. But it just changed my mindset about work life balance, about potential of what was what you were able to achieve as a human being, and what was possible, um, and then access. I think I just realised you know, in in England access is sometimes quite hard. There is an age restriction on access. If you're not old enough, you can't be a manager, for example. Or if you're, um, you know, if that, there's always this you know, structure like who's bothering me now in England. Whereas in Hong Kong, it's like how can I help you and how can you help me? It completely transformed my mindset. Yeah. Well, I want to find out more about living and working in Hong Kong in a bit. Simon Squibb, the host of the Good Luck Club podcast. I'm Graham Mack. This is the Pod 20, and we're up to number nine on the countdown, which is the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition from Comedy Central's Podcast Network. At eight. On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Jay's latest guest is the host of the Happiness Lab podcast, Dr. Laurie Santos. At seven, Red Handed, the true crime podcast with Hannah and Saruti. Saruti, 
Do you agree with this? I've always thought of podcasting as the punk version of broadcasting. It's like when in the 70s, you know, they say punk was a real... I don't know what, what the real answer is, and but it's all like revisionist history now, but people who, who were amongst it and in the scene were saying that punk was a reaction to the the, the prog rock and, you know, these huge yeah. <laughs> Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes and all that. And, and this was more, you know, punk was very homemade. It was right back to three chord, you know, and just yes. loud and energy and all that. And I think that's what podcasting really is because radio, radio was really kind of, I'd like, if I was trying to be kind to radio, I'd say radio's lost its way, but radio hasn't, doesn't know where it's going. So it, it, it hasn't lost its way. It doesn't know where to go. It, it has become so, a lot of radio has become so cliched and so phony. You know, today's best music mix and the number one hit music station yeah. and the news at the top of the hour and the pips and, and it's just all so corny now. Whereas podcasting has, and, and particularly yours has just come along and just gone, Wah! you know, <laughs> so, do, do you get that feeling too? Does, like, can you listen to can you listen to regular broadcasting now without thinking? Well, this is a joke. Why do they all have to have at ten o'clock in the morning? Guess the year. Why do they all have to do that? You know, this is just, you don't have to do that. Yeah, I think you're so right, and I think uh, I hadn't thought about it like that. But uh, you're completely right. Like I personally don't really listen to the radio anymore unless I'm in the car with my mum, and she loves listening to Three Counties Radio for some reason. Right. But uh, I think you're right. It is that. Uh, people just consume media in a very different way now. I even think if you look at streaming services, but even if you just look at YouTube, they don't have to be high production quality videos that are pulling in millions and millions and millions of views. It's just one person with a webcam talking directly to this audience. And I think the rise of YouTube in that way has really prepped people for a more organic, more authentic, maybe less polished version of what they were used to. Podcasting may have not worked a few years ago when it would have been perhaps deemed as not being high production. And don't get me wrong, I do enjoy a very high produced podcast like the BBC Deliver, uh, like Serial Was, like those more serialized long form podcasts. But they don't, uh, there's a reason that they're short, that they are uh, limited series. They're the 10 episodes. I'll listen to them. I'll really respect it. But if you want me listening week in, week out, I need to have a vibe with that host. I need to feel like there is something authentic and real and almost like they become your friend because yeah. that's how I discovered podcasting. I was traveling on my own um, for a, a year and there was only so much music and so many sort of stagnant things that I could listen to like the radio without feeling like I was going crazy. I wanted something to replace the friends maybe that I didn't have because I was traveling solo and that's when I discovered podcasting and I was like, I don't feel at all like I've just been on a 10 hour bus because I just did it with some of my friends in my ears. And I think, yeah, I think the podcasting is the future. Um, but I think the great thing about podcasting is it's not restrictive. So the BBC have their niche, the Guardian doing their thing. You have the high production quality ones that are happening. But at the same time, like I said, there isn't, um, we don't have to wait for permission for somebody somewhere in a boardroom to decide, oh, we need more diverse voices. We need this kind of voice. We need this kind of story. If you have a story, you have a voice and you have a laptop, you can make your voice heard. And I think that that's just proof that diverse voices are what people want. Um, 
And I think that it's a beautiful thing. I think yeah, it's great. I think, I think that's why I, I think, love podcasting. I think particularly in commercial radio, um, the people running it didn't realize that people want interesting people. Uh, I'll, yeah. You know, I came through radio... Radio is the commercial radio, being a commercial radio disc jockey is the only job in the world. And I said this to Jonathan Brandmeier, who's a legendary broadcaster in Chicago, is it's the only job in the world where you are paid to talk, but constantly told to shut up. They, you know, the more music, less talk thing. They, they decided, they decided, well, they got, because what happened was they hired a load of people who weren't very interesting people who had not, and these people had nothing to say. And then they did some research and the listeners, the research came back, surprise, surprise, tell them to shut up and just play the music. Well, that shouldn't have been a surprise when you hired really boring people. And so radio got this idea that talk is bad and started stripping all the personality out of radio. And now radio is like so commercial music radio is so bland. The idiots outside bre breakfast radio is still okay. But outside breakfast, the, the, the bland idiots with nothing to say that's why they read so many texts they've got nothing to say themselves they love it when there's a, someone else's opinion they can read out because they never thought of that so it became just so bland and so boring yeah so all these people who said no people don't want talk people don't want talk people don't want talk and then rogan gets a hundred million from spotify because he's an interesting person and he has interesting guests. People exactly. have always wanted to connect with interesting people. And the mistake radio exactly. has been making for years as it slowly kills itself is it keeps hiring boring people who do as they're told and don't make any waves. And people don't want that. If people wanted that, podcasting wouldn't exist. And, you know, yeah. you and Hannah getting right. really deep into a case, you're not just giving out the facts. You're giving out your opinions. You're debating yeah. different things. And it's that's that's what it is. And it's a shame radio can't... See, you and Hannah should be running a radio station <laughs> and telling these... You, well, you've proved it, you know, in two and a half years, you're now making money from one show a week. Whereas yeah. these people are trying to make money running... There were more redundancies this week because they can't run a thing that's on the air 24 hours a day and everybody's got access to it. They don't have to find it. With podcasting, there still is a little bit of work to finding it. And they need people like you to show them how it's done because not only have they lost their... They haven't lost their way. They don't know where they're going. They, they've, they've got this medium and they don't know what to do with it. So it's so it's great really that so you've much. got your podcast going and you've worked it out and you worked it out without being told what to do because the people who tell you what to do in radio by and large haven't got a clue anyway so you did really well there you've landed in the right place <laughs> you. on your own thank so, you graham that's really nice of you today and no, i, think, I, um, I really i really do Sarudi. i really admire you the go just going out there and just doing it but i, I mean you know, you know if i tried to do it to anybody i think that was yeah. why i think you know, we were, we never sense, we censor ourselves, we do. And so while what we put out feels very, uh, you know, it is, it, none of it is rehearsed. We are scripted, but because there are a lot of facts, there is a case, we do have to tell the, the timeline of the actual story. But everything else that you hear is just me and Hannah, as if, as you and I are talking now. But we do listen to it several times before it's released and we say you can't, we can't say that let's take that out i don't think that's on brand what let's kind of stuff out. comes out what how bad does it have to be to come out of red-handed 
I think <laughs> I think it's not so much that it's bad. It's that because we try not to censor ourselves when we're recording, yeah. we listen back to it and say, I don't know where I was going with that point. I feel like it's distracting I from see. the story. Yeah. I feel like I didn't think that that point through. Um, and usually what we do is when we take stuff out, we've already corrected ourselves. So it will we will realize organically as we're recording and say, uh, no, what I mean is this. And then we'll just we'll just phrase it in a way that that previous bit can be cut out and it still makes sense. Because what we don't, we have built um, a specific brand for ourselves that we don't have to try that hard to maintain because it is authentic. The things that we're saying, the things we're advocating for, whether it is about, um, you know, we, we don't, there isn't a single case that we would be scared to take on. I guess that's a way to put it. So whether it is about racism, whether it's about institutional homophobia, whether it's about marginalized communities or corruption or things like that, I just feel like I, I feel like we can we can tackle any subject in a way that we feel proud of. And if people disagree with it, that's okay because it's just our opinion. Uh, don't get me wrong. We have looked up several times uh, libel uh, and how to avoid being sued and things like this for the things that we're saying um but generally speaking we it's our opinion so yeah. we don't have shareholders we don't have anybody uh, a ceo watching over us watching the money and how it's going to be impacted in fact we've made a cognizant decision that if we're just real and authentic and say what we say the people who love us will find us and they'll support the show yeah. and that's what we've been lucky enough has and the happened. people who complain it's not for them, which is another exactly. problem with, with broadcasting. This was something I talked to John Holmes about when he was on this show. And, you know, he he is down in broadcasting history in Britain for having the highest Ofcom fine. It was uh, it was reduced to £75,000. It was originally uh, twice that, but they reduced it as long as, they, as long as the radio station fired him. That got one complaint, and it got one complaint... He was on Virgin at night and it got the the issue was it was this one complaint was from an old lady who listened by accident, whereas the show wasn't <laughs> wasn't for her. Yeah, so exactly. why take any notice of that? And only one complaint. Well, the good thing is you can go because I used to have arguments with radio station bosses and they'd say, oh, this somebody's complaining. And I'd go, well, tell them not to listen. It's not for them, obviously. <laughs> well, if they're listening to the, But you you've got that. You can go, well, we'll do it for the people who like it. The people who are into it, the people who are into the style of it and, and the subjects, we, but the people who aren't into it, who wouldn't like it, we're not going to worry about them. That's Absolutely. very healthy. That's exactly how we think about it. In fact, in the very early days when we started the show, we did, when you have smaller numbers and then you have people complaining because you're, you're still trying to find your niche, you're trying to find, find out how, what your voice is going to be. Yeah. And when people would complain, we'd be like, oh, maybe we did go too far, maybe we shouldn't have said that. But then we quickly realized we're, we're making the show for people, but we're also making it for ourselves. Yeah. And now I feel like, I don't know, this sounds really corny, but whenever we do an episode of Red Handed, even if it means I have to stay up, pull three all-nighters in a row to get the research to the point that I'm really happy with, it always feels worth it because once that episode is out there that week, that is like a work of art as far as I'm concerned for the work that we put into it. And that's now there forever. Yeah. So I'm willing to um, do whatever it takes to get that out to the quality that we want it. And if people complain these days about something we've said and about opinion we had, I really, I'm happy to respond to them with a list of podcasts that I can recommend that they should go listen to instead. Yeah. Because 
these are podcasts here's a list of podcasts that are inoffensive they're not going to give you their opinion they're not going to force their political lefty liberal opinions down your throat they're just going to tell you the facts and you should go listen to them to avoid being offended if you're going to listen to a show that is not just the facts but is um, presented by two women with opinions then i think you should accept the risk that that entails that you may be offended because I accept the risk that that throwing my opinions out there entails that I may get backlash. So we all have to accept that risk in this world that we live. So if it's not for you, please don't listen. That's so okay with me. (laughs) Same with the pod 20. If you don't like it, turn it off now. Stop whining. I bet all the radio anoraks have already turned it off and people in radio management and radio consultants. This is a show. The pod 20 that celebrates the world's best podcasts. People with passion and opinions and things to say. The kind of people that wouldn't get anywhere near a broadcast microphone. People wouldn't let them near because they are interesting people. You keep hiring idiots. Idiots who think the height of entertainment is reading out texts. Texts that say nothing. Hi to Dave in Southampton who's washing his car. Sue in Scunthorpe's about to do the shopping. Sarah's decorating the kitchen. That's not entertainment. If you keep reading out people's texts and saying nothing, podcasts will flourish. Radio, particularly commercial radio, you created podcasts by making yourself so irrelevant. Thank you. Red-Handed with Saruti and Hannah is at number seven this week on the Pod 20. At six, the Joe Rogan experience. Joe's latest guest is the comedian and writer Tom Popper. At five, Freakonomics Radio, the hidden side of everything with Stephen J. Daubner, co-author of the Freakonomics books. My special guest this week is Simon Squibb. He's an entrepreneur and the host of the Good Luck Club podcast. Simon, at the age of 23, you moved to Hong Kong. Did they have a business culture there that meant they were more likely to take a chance on you, even though you were still quite young and they wouldn't have known much about you? It's a very good question. And I think that there are, it's quite a complicated answer. When I first went to Hong Kong, people would tell me, oh, it's very different here. You know, in Hong Kong, there's a thing called face, you know, where, you know, where if you, you have to give people respect and you have to, you know, you have to give your elders respect and you have to have, you know, all this um, structure around how you deal with people. And as I, I spent 20 years in Asia in total. So what I realized, actually, a, a lot of that, there's also um, face in England. You know, people don't want to be disrespected or told they're stupid or you know if you have a client and you're in a meeting and you tell the boss of that company that they've got it wrong and they're an idiot you're not gonna win you know win friends and influence people so so that actually wasn't that much difference that as time went i realized you know people in asia love their children (laughs) people in asia breathe oxygen and eat three meals a day you know and, and actually there's just slight nuanced differences like they might read the newspaper back to front compared you know there's certain ways of reading text from top to bottom there's there's slight nuances that are different but the basic fundamentals of capitalism of love of 
a kindness they were you know they were all prevalent and as always if you were sincere and you were decent just like in england i think this follows through too eventually people will trust you but you but people didn't trust me quicker in hong kong i think there's a couple of reasons why there's not that many english people um in asia you know that you're you're kind of a you're still unique um and and there's some kudos given to you because you've broken out of the you know the, the typical system in england mm-hmm. and then um, if you've got something interesting to say i did find that asian businesses would listen to you whereas english companies quite often had a bit more of a traditional mindset they were stuck in their ways i could tell you some stories about conversations i've had with in- english brands like woolworths where they you know they just wouldn't listen if you suggested they should go online i did suggest to woolworths they should go online once and they told me no one's going to buy pick a mix simon <laughs> online you know and miss the point completely whereas in asia because it's an emerging market as well there's this mindset about how can we leapfrog infrastructure that we don't need and go straight to consumers what can we do that's innovative and i had a talent for knowing what the future looked like and so i could have a conversation with brands out there and they were quite willing to to leapfrog into digital for example which was the early 2000 uh part of what i did i helped a lot of brands go online um, i built this agency fluid which helped brands like estee lauder and cnn get into asia and they were very very open to you know creative ideas and i think that's where i really flourished uh, in, in in asia which perhaps i wouldn't have done in england because they don't really have if i go to bt and suggest that they should dump the phone line and focus on nothing but wi-fi you know there might have been a, a bit of a backlash in early 2000 right yeah but you look back at the companies that didn't take that message the big ones like the kodaks of this world who would have thought they would fail but wow well you know. this is it yeah, yeah i actually have a ted talk on that i did a ted talk about um kodak and how kodak actually invented the digital camera did they wow yeah they, they were the people but they were so scared of what it meant that they buried it hoping it would never come to the surface of course because their whole model was around film yeah but what they should have done of course is embrace the digital camera and, and own that market um, but yeah. no they, they they can't people can't innovate what they're holding on to the past but a lot of english companies do hold on to the past um bt is a good example of that right i mean they, yeah. they, they ha- actually had a mobile phone division um o2 which they sold yeah so they actually sold the future <laughs> yeah um, they've gone back now with their other one haven't they now they do they do do mobile but they did sell their original one o2 yeah yeah so yeah. that what was actually their future they sold it off as not core to their main business which you know it's just it's just insane madness simon squibb his podcast is called the good luck club and simon will be back again next week at number four this week on the Pod 20, it's Shagged Married Annoyed. Rosie and Chris Ramsey have a conversation without being interrupted by a toddler. Number three, the Michelle Obama podcast. Michelle's latest guests are her mom and her brother. At two, the Taskmaster podcast, hosted by Ed Gamble and released straight after the show is broadcast on Channel 4. And at number one this week, for a second week in a row, The Fault Line, Bush, Blair and Iraq. On the 11th of September 2001, President George W. Bush made a call to Tony Blair. 18 months later, Bush and Blair led a coalition into a war that went horribly wrong. David Dimbleby takes us back to those crucial 18 months talking to prime ministers, politicians, spies and weapons inspectors. 
That's it for episode 25 of the Pod 20. Thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Simon Squibb, Tom Clark Hill, Rob Goldstone, and Saruti Bala. If you'd like to watch extended video chats with all of my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Next week's guest is the sexpert, Alex Fox. Alex, during lockdown, a lot of people have been having virtual dates. Are virtual dates here to stay? It seems so, yeah. About a quarter of people have decided that they're going to carry on um, doing virtual dating, even if... It feels so nerve-wracking to say when the pandemic's over. Please, when the pandemic's over, when we're not, when we're back to normal, a lot of people say they're going to continue to use video dating. I think a lot of people will also continue to use uh, video communication to talk to their friends and their family. And a lot of us are already contemplating more flexible working, even when we're allowed to return to our offices. Uh, working from home for a lot of people has advantages. So polishing your skills and getting those basics right um, is a really good idea, no matter what your plans. Um, and there's just a few really small things that you can do. If you are intimidated by the idea of um, having a natter like we are doing through a screen, and because for a lot of people it does feel new or you know, it makes them feel a bit fragile, a bit vulnerable. The first thing is if you can make sure at all that your Wi-Fi connection is decent and stable, make sure your router's in a good place. Um, avoiding those stuttering, stammering, bad connections where someone freezes always in the middle of a gurn isn't it they look like they're doing thriller themed <laughs> musical statues or you know you don't want your punchline being cut off at the end of a joke so a decent wi-fi connection obviously i'm going to say virgin media <laughs> um other things just to keep an eye on are um during a zoom like the one we're having now or a skype call I can see a little picture of myself in the top right corner of my laptop. I've been trying to ignore me because um, there's often a, a temptation to like check your hairs in place, see what your face looks like. Uh, when I'm doing that, I'm not looking at you. And eye contact is a really important thing for making somebody feel like uh, you're, you have that human connection and that you're paying them attention. Um, I spoke to a specialist, Emma Kenny, a, a psychologist who's a brilliant woman, uh, and we were talking a little bit about eye contact. And apparently the ideal time to hold eye contact if you want to let somebody know that you fancy them is nine seconds. Right. Any shorter than that, and it seems like you're disinterested. Any longer than that, and you look like a weirdo. <laughs> Just creepy. <laughs> yeah, it can be a bit creepy. Um, in the absence of body language that you'd have in real life, like I can't reach out and touch your hand right now, regrettably, um, or you know, I, we can't, we don't know what each other smells like. We, there are chemical aspects of our interaction that have been removed, um, leading into other things like gesticulation, uh, making sure that you're expressing yourself with your face, basically not holding yourself as though you're in Jurassic Park and there's a T-Rex over there and you're trying not to get noticed. Um, that can just automatically make a conversation feel a bit more engaged and a bit more relaxed. Alex Fox will be my special guest next week to talk about the podcasts that she's involved in. And what will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will Faultline be at number one for a third week? Or will the Taskmaster podcast knock it off? Maybe your favourite podcast will be Top of the Pods. Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk.
www.thepodcast.co.uk. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.